scripture reading is in Second Thessalonians 3, verses 6 through 15. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But the toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you that, this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, we would encourage you to grab a Bible that's in front of you. And if there is not a Bible in front of you or around you, just raise your hand and we'll make sure you get a Bible around you or in front of you. Um, because we really want you to have the Word of God open with us this morning as we continue studying in the life of Joseph. And if you're wondering where to turn to, I want you to go and just begin right at the very beginning of your Bible and open it up to Genesis. It's the very first book of the Bible. We're in Genesis, and you're going to turn to Genesis chapter 47. Genesis chapter 47, and we're going to be continuing on where Nigel left off last week at verse, this, this morning at verse 13, and we're going to be finishing the chapter in Genesis 47. We're finding ourselves here at a very interesting piece of scripture this morning. But before we dive in and look at the text this morning, I want you to do something that's a little different. I've kind of been known to have it to do this every once in a while. But I want you to think of something for a second. I would like you to think of descriptive words that describe work or labor or chores or, or things that you, you have to do to maintain things, so work or labor. And I want you to think of a few of those descriptive terms and, and turn to the person that's next to you or close to you and say, this is, this is what I think of are some descriptive terms of work. And we're, we're going to give you about a couple minutes to do that. Um, so just turn to you and be honest here. No, don't, don't. Okay, we're in church. We don't have to sugarcoat it. You know, just, just say what you think about work and labor and those kind of things. All right? So turn to your neighbor and just, just have a little powwow real quick. That's okay. Before things get out of control, I better, 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 you know, rein this back in. All right, 
What, what are some things, some words, just throw out some words that, that people describe work as. Just throw them out. Sweat. Sweat. Tiring. Tiring. Strain. 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 Strength. Rewarding. Boring. Sure. <laughs> there we go. I think we're starting to get truthful now. All right. What else, what else you got? Joy. Jo- okay, joy. Accomplishment. Accomplishment. Very good. Productive. Arthritis producing. All right. Well, very good. You know, this is very true of, of all the things that work. And I, I think the one of the things that we need to discover this morning that when God initially made work, he made it with, without struggle, pain, without arthritis, without any of that. When God initially made work in the garden in Genesis 1 and 2, and he commanded Adam and Eve to name the animals and care for the things that he had made, he made it gloriously wonderful and perfect. And then one thing that God made work to do was Adam and Eve were to use work as a way to worship God. And I noticed that word wasn't used as we were talking about work wasn't worship. I don't think we view work in today's society oftentimes as an opportunity for us to worship God. But when God made it, that's what he made it to be part of. He instructed Adam and Eve that, you know, it's not good for you to, to not just be alone, but to be idle. We see that in the passage that we read. Idleness is bad. And he made us to work. And in that work, we get to worship and glorify God. But there was a problem, and that was the fall. And part of the curse of the fall was that when we see this, we see that work became no longer joyful necessarily, but hard and laborious, and people were going to have to struggle now to see something positive come from their labors. And that's where we exist today. We exist in a world in where in which we labor and we work really hard to see if there's going to be positive results from our work. But the beautiful thing is Jesus Christ When he died upon the cross, he didn't just come to die to redeem us from our sin, but he came to redeem all things. And one of the things that Jesus came to redeem is work. And I don't know if we think about that enough. Today's passage, as we look at here, we're getting an example of an individual who used work as an opportunity to worship as we look at Genesis chapter 47. So hopefully you got your Bibles open there now. Genesis 47. Before we start reading the text, it was very interesting as I was studying this week and preparing for the sermon, I was reading this one commentary, and this commentary made this statement regarding this passage. He says, even commentators who disagree about the period of Egyptian history that illuminates Genesis chapters 47, 13 to 26, do agree on one point, and that point is their contention that verses 13 to 26 are patently intrusive in the Joseph story and that they contribute nothing to the development of the Joseph narrative. Now, I find that a tad bit offensive. Anybody else find that a tad bit offensive? Because we understand that all Scripture, all Scripture is for our benefit, instruction and reproof and correction, right? We understand that all scripture, so how does this little passage of scripture deviate from that? I would argue it does not. 
And I think you arrive at that conclusion sometimes when you get in the minutia and then in the details and you lose perspective of the greater story of Joseph. Because this absolutely fits within the motif. And we talk about the motif being this, this, this storyline, this idea, this understanding that Joseph is a type of savior, if you will, in this story for not only the nation of Israel, but also the people of Egypt and Canaan. And we see that continue as, he, as we take a look at how Joseph faithfully serves Pharaoh. Now, we've seen Joseph faithfully serve Potiphar. Remember, his slave master who he was initially sold to when he arrived to Egypt. We've seen Joseph faithfully be the servant of the guilty in prison as he faithfully served the prison master. And now we see Joseph faithfully serving Pharaoh. Look with me here at Genesis chapter 47, starting in verse 13. Now, there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt, of Canaan, languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph bought the money, brought the money into Pharaoh's house. Now we see here Joseph is in charge of distributing and collecting funds for the grain that they had saved up. Because you remember, during the seven years of plenty, Joseph had told Pharaoh, you need to have somebody appointed to bring in and store up, harvest the seed, the food, so that when the years of plenty or when the years of famine come, we have something to distribute out. And so that's what Joseph's doing. Now we see, I believe this text is occurring in the latter time of this famine, but the famine is so severe and is so far wide reaching that people coming all the way as far as from Canaan are coming down into Egypt to purchase food. But the problem is people have given all of their money. Now it's very interesting, the term that's used here for what Joseph gave out was the idea of term of ration. Joseph gave them rations. Joseph gave them food, something that they needed to eat at that time that would have lasted them for a period of time, but they wouldn't have been able to replant with it. They wouldn't have been able to grow their own food with it. Next we see in verse 15, when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. And he supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. So in exchange for the livestock, now, now the money's gone. So they can no longer purchase anything. So they go to livestock, which livestock is also where they gained their ability to make money and to harvest and to do those kind of things. And so now they're turning all those into Pharaoh. Now, some of you may be saying, this is, this is getting a bit unfair. This is getting a bit unfair. They're, they're having to give up all of their possessions in order to have food. And, and, and I'm going to address that in just a moment. So hold on with me if that thought is starting to come to your mind. But what's very interesting, do you remember who Pharaoh appointed to take care of the livestock and be shepherds of, of his animals? Somebody. Joseph's family. 
So it's quite interesting, as people, as we're seeing this happen in Egypt and all this is taking place, Joseph's family is continuing to get blessed by Pharaoh in order, as they maintain and take care of these animals that are coming into him now. Finally, we see here in verse 18, and when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, we will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent, the herd's of the livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land, buy us and our land for food? And with our land, we will be servants to Pharaoh and give us seed that we may live and not die, that the land may not be so desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. And the land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy. For the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on that allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is the seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the fair harvest, you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves, and your households, and as food for your little ones. Now how many of you think this is fair. How many of you think that, wait a minute, they just sold themselves and their land and said they literally have nothing left. And now, as they plant and as they grow things, whatever they harvest, they're going to have to give a fifth of that year after 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 year with no end in sight. Their children, their grandchildren, their great-grandchildren, their great-great-grandchildren are going to give a fifth because they no longer own the land. It belongs to Pharaoh. Before we start thinking about the people, I want you to think about Joseph's actions during this time and how faithful he is in administrating. Pharaoh's property because who stored the grain Pharaoh whose grain was stored up Pharaoh's so we're not seeing an unjust act take place here before we so before we start thinking it's unjust what is taking place it's not it's Pharaoh's It is Pharaoh's seed that he has stored up. It's Pharaoh's food that he has stored up during this time of plenty so that he could take care of and feed his people. And for some of you saying, well, why in the world would they not just give it away? I mean, Pharaoh's got so much. He's got all the money. He's got all the livestock. What's wrong with Pharaoh that he would just give, not give this food away to people who are in need? I want to challenge you with something. In all of Scripture, there are only two categories of people that is ever deemed to give something to them for nothing. 
Because I would argue that that concept is not a biblical concept to give food and to give nourishment away for free, but rather it is the expectation that work is accomplished, work is done, something is paid for for the food received. Widows and orphans. The expectation in Scripture is that work is done, money is tendered and given for something that is received. You see, it is not good for man to just receive something for nothing. And, and I want to challenge this in today's society because today's society, there's a lot of expectation of that. Something for nothing. And Tom Dunbar, during our sermon chat this week, gave us a great story and illustration of what can happen and what often happens when something for nothing is, is, is given away. There was this village in, in Honduras. Um, it was called Sierra... Sierra Hermosa, he can say it so much better than I can. Sierra Hermosa, okay? And in Sierra Hermosa, they are in a great need. There was a great uh, flood that took place, correct? There was a flood that Tom... Well, it was just the life. Poverty. And so this pastor had this great idea. We're going to get all these clothes together to take down to Sierra Hermosa. And we're going to give them away. And, and so they did that. They collected all these clothes for them. They took them down there, and they gave these clothes away. In the first year, it went really good. The people were really appreciative. The next year, they're like, wow, that went really well the first year. Let's do that again the next year. The next year, they go down there, and this time, instead of people taking just what they need, they scooped up bundles of clothing and walked away. And people on the trails away from the village found clothes just strewn all over the place as people picked through what they wanted and discarded what they didn't. There was no value in the clothing. By the third year, now we got full on just the evilness and the wickedness of men starts to creep in as people are getting in and trying to steal the clothes ahead of time and trying, people trying to, to, to manipulate the system and to get what they want and to keep other people out in the way. You see, the intention for us is to work and then to receive and to pay a wage to receive. And so this is not an unjust thing that is taking place here in Egypt. And I think that's valuable for us to understand that it is a biblical and a good thing for us as Christians to understand the ethic of work. In fact, there's a whole system of theology written that's come up in the last 20, 30 years called the theology of work. And it was funny, I was telling my dear friend, um, about, about this and, and Tom Dunbar and, and Tom goes well that's not really new that's, that's what I've been, we've been living our whole lives <laughs> and that's what I was raised with I was raised on my watching my parents on the farm work their tail ends off to pay bills um, my mom worked nights at the VA hospital in Grand Island which VA was what 45 miles away from, from where the farm was, and then dad was working nights welding while working the farm during the day and running his own body, a body shop. But I never heard my parents complain. My parents did that so that my sister and I can go to a private school that they helped start because they felt it was very important for Christy and I, or Katrina and I to get an education in a Christian school. And I was taught that. I was taught that from a very young age, that work is something that is good. It's hard, but it's good. And I think we need, as Christians, need to, in this society, in this day and age, we need to 
view that and help redeem that thought and behind this, that as we look at Joseph serving Pharaoh, he served Pharaoh diligently. He served Potiphar diligently. He served the prison guard diligently. He labored and worked for the glory of God. How do we know that? Because we see the expression that Potiphar knew God. Potiphar knew of God because of Joseph putting God on display in everything he did. And one of the ways, brothers and sisters, that we put God on display is through our work. It's through how we labor. It's interesting in this, I encourage you to go there. It's called uh, www.thetheologyofwork.org. They make some points, and I'd like to quickly go through these points with you regarding the theology of work. And, and you can write these down, the scripture references as I go. They contend that God made us to work. And I think that that's very visibly seen in Genesis chapter 1 and, verse, and, one and 2. And I want to challenge you as parents and grandparents. Are you teaching your children that? Are you teaching your grandkids that? God made us to work. God made us to labor. In our house, we don't have an allowance. We have earnings. Because our kids earn money for doing chores. We want to teach them at a young age that you don't just get something for free and have that expectation, but rather you have the expectation to work and earn a wage that is due. We also see in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, that our work actually matters to God both now and eternally. God saved us for a work that he prepared beforehand for us to do. And third point, God provides us with unique skills and gifts and talents, and he calls us to particular roles and activities. And we see that in Exodus 31, where God gave those craftsmen specific gifts and abilities to be used in the construction of the tabernacle. And they were filled with the Spirit. I love that. They were filled with the Spirit, and the Spirit led them in their ability to work. Brothers and sisters, do we think about that? Us being filled with the Spirit as we go about working and laboring for God? Kids, as you think about picking up your chores and doing chores at home and pulling weeds or, or, or doing the, the bathroom or, or doing chores around the house, are you think, I'm going to be filled with the Spirit as I do this? Actually, it's probably not the right Spirit that we're filled with in those moments, Right? as we start complaining and griping and groaning that we've got to do this. But rather, it's a privilege and it's an honor. It's something that God gives us to do for him, for the, his glory. Quality, character, and ethics are foundational for our work. Colossians 3, 23 to 24. Our work should be part of our worship. Colossians 3, 17. We do all, all to the glory of God. Our work should be centered on service to others. We see that clearly in Philippians chapter 2, that we're to have the mindset of Christ. To put the needs of others above our own. The use of wealth in our investments should be directed by God. 1 Timothy 6, 17 to 19. I want to read that for you because that passage just struck me this week. 1 Timothy Chapter 6, verses 17 to 19. As for the rich 
in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to see their hopes on uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Brothers and sisters, we, we, are, we are in a very affluent society. And I think the expectation of us is that as we're in this affluent society, that we are a benefit to other people with what we have, with what we possess. And what does that look like? We, we briefly talked that in about it in our sermon chat. We have people who, we have homeless people, we have people in our society who are in great need. And if you talk to someone, I've got a dear friend, Brandon Wallace, who is in homeless ministry in Dallas, Texas. And Brandon has said, the worst thing that you can ever do is give a homeless person cash. It takes hard work. If your heart is breaking for the homeless, if your heart is breaking for those in need, it's what they need is relationship with you. As you walk alongside of them, as you bring them into your home, as you give them opportunities to labor, to work in order to receive wages, in order to receive meals and receive food and things that they need. Give them opportunities so that their minds start understanding and be redeemed once again in accordance with what God has designed for us as people. But let's be honest. It's a lot easier to grab the change out of our coin thing or or grab a $5 bill or a $10 bill, or if we really want to feel good about ourselves, a $20 bill, and hand it to them. It's a lot harder to enter into relationship with people so that Jesus Christ might be demonstrated through our lives into theirs, so that they might follow after him. That takes work. And finally, we see work as a gift from God, God in Ecclesiastes 5, verse 19. We have this incredible role and responsibility to be a people who work and work not with an attitude of, oh, woe is me. Oh, my life is so hard. I can't believe they didn't give me that raise. I can't believe they didn't give me that promotion. I can't believe, I can't believe, I can't believe. How many of you view your work as a calling by God? I wish more hands were raised. Because let me tell you something. God calls us to his work and to do these things for him. And we have a lot of people in this room that, that are retired as well. You know what? I, Tom Dunbar, I, I, I'm going to get Tom up here one of these days and, and do a sermon on retirement. Because I think it would be very enlightening to, to folks. Tom is one of the hardest working people I know. Tom views his retirement, and I don't mean to just brag on Tom and put Tom on a pedestal this morning, and he's feeling very uncomfortable as I'm doing this, but I told him I was going to do it. I did tell you I was going to do this. <laughs> Tom was missionary for 35 years in South America. He views the gift of Hispanic language as that very much a gift that he needs to put to work and use for God. And so his, his heart and his passion, his call is for the Hispanic, family, Hispanic folks in our community. And he is working and laboring by, he created the ESL program and has got that going. And it was not easy. It's a lot of coordination, getting teachers ready. And if you want to do that, it's not too late to step up and help out with the ESL. Please see Tom about that if you want to help. 
Thomas viewed his retirement from the mission field as an opportunity to labor here for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ in this place. You see, retirement isn't an escape from work. It's a transfer into a different type of work. And I challenge our folks in this room that are retired to transition and to find out where God is calling them to be at work for him right now and to get involved. This morning I am blessed to have someone here um, who I love very much. In the year 2000, a know-it-all sergeant um, was a chaplain assistant in a divisional CAV unit regiment at Fort Hood, Texas. I'd come back from a brief deployment to Kuwait, and I was pretty full of myself. I, you know, got my, been on a deployment now and thought a lot of myself and what, I, what I'd learned, and in walks this chaplain, Doug Durson, and he is a senior captain. And he was the last chaplain that I got to serve under, and I think it's great to go out on top. Doug began to teach me what work looked like. And not just laboring for a promotion, not just having my eyes focused on getting becoming staff sergeant and, and smoothing the right people, and, but rather laboring for the gospel of Jesus Christ with the soldiers and loving them. Doug taught me about what hard ministry looked like as we had a soldier who'd come back from that deployment, shot his wife, and then shot himself. And Doug took me along as we told those little children that their mother had died. And the way he got down on his knees and touched their hearts and their lives was so beautiful to me. And Doug has remained a part of my life. The reason I'm here, one of the big reasons I'm here today is because of Doug Dirksen. Doug and Michelle served as mentors to Christy and I in our marriage and in our parenting. They're, they're one of the big reasons because they adopted two little girls that we adopted two little girls. They have journeyed with us through so much. And Doug taught me what work looked like. Doug taught me that work isn't trying to clamor for more money and more position because that wasn't Doug. Doug retired as a major from the Army. He could have clamored for position, but he wanted to stay with soldiers, and that meant not moving up to lieutenant colonel, not staying in longer. Thank you, brother. And so it's a real honor to have him here today. Can you, can you stand up? Is that okay? Is that all right? All right. <clears throat> It is amazing to have those people in our lives that teach us what work looks like. And the right reason for work, and that work can be worship. One of the reasons Joseph was able to have this perspective of work, that work points people to God, is because of these next verses. And starting in verse 27, we see here, Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it, and they were fruitful and multiplied greatly. It's very fascinating to me how all of Egypt and all of Canaan were 
have everything taken away from him. And while that's taking place, God is blessing the nation of Israel bountifully. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. And so the days of Jacob, the three years, the years of his life were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand underneath my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their place. He answered and said, I I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. And Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. Now what's taking place here is I believe Jacob knows that Joseph is faithful to God. And when he had take, Joseph take his hand and place it underneath his father's thigh, that's a little weird, isn't it? How many of you have done that this week with your children? No, no, I want you to promise me, put your hand underneath my thigh over here. Anybody do that this week? No, nobody did that? Okay. Well, what that was a sign and, and a symbol of is that Joseph wasn't making that covenant just with Jacob. He's making that covenant to God. That he will do this in obedience to God. He will do this in obedience to the covenant God. The God who says, this is not going to be your resting place. Jacob knows that Egypt is not their home. God has promised them the land. The land of Canaan, God had promised that to them. That is their promised land. And he knows God will return them to them. So don't you dare bury me here. I want to go be buried with my fathers where someday you will dwell and you will be. You see, brothers and sisters, when we work, we're supposed to work with a perspective and the mindset that this isn't home and that we're working not to just, not to build treasures up here, but rather to build treasures up in the kingdom to come, in God's kingdom. We work with this mindset that we have a God who is promised and who is covenanted with his people. And that covenant with us, he says that I'm going to, Jesus says, I'm coming back again someday and I'm gonna take you to be where I am. And so when we get up to labor in the mornings, when we get up to work, we're supposed to work with the perspective, this isn't home. I'm not working for just a paycheck here. I'm working for the glory of God and put God on display and for eternal treasures that will never fade or go away. That's what we work for. But the day and age that we live in, the flesh, wants to tell us we work for a paycheck. We work for this, this money. We work for a bank account. We work for our own stability. We work for our own retirement to, to protect ourselves. Well, those things can be good. We hold them loosely because guess what? God can take them away. And one of the great things we discussed this week, and I'm going to briefly speak this, is this idea of could you... If this idea of understanding that all of a sudden one day somebody comes in and takes your land, takes your money, takes your livestock, takes your cars, takes take those things that you use to get to work to and from, what if somebody came in someday and took all of that away from you and then told you you weren't going to, you're just going to work to pay back? Would you still serve God? Would you still labor? Would you still work to put him on display or would we say it's not mine and if it's not mine it's not worth working for I'm just going to stop laboring I'm going to stop working if I can't possess it because in America we have a really hard time in understanding this 
We feel if it's not our possession, if we don't belong, you know, and if we're not getting paid enough when we're not getting, you know, it's not fair. All those things come to mind. But we don't know what the future holds. But brothers and sisters, no matter what situation we find ourselves in, we are supposed to labor as into God for his glory, for his good, to put him on display. Whether we're in a socialist setting, a communist setting, or a democratic society setting. It doesn't matter. For we belong to him and we work for his glory. And the future that we have in him. And the greatest example we have of that is in our Savior Jesus Christ. What was Jesus' address? Street name? City, where, where did he, where, city-wise, where did he own a home? Oh, he didn't, did he? He didn't. And we see in the scriptures, and they're going to come up here, if you would move towards the, Jesus is the greater worker. Luke, if you would. And go one more. In Hebrews 10, 7, Jesus says, Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as is written of me in the scroll of the book. Next passage. In John 14, 31, But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Next one. For I have not spoken of my own authority, but the Father who has sent me has himself given me a commandment what to say, and what to speak. Go ahead. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Over and over and over again, we read that of Jesus' actions and what he said and what he did in order that scriptures might be filled because that's why Jesus came to do the will of his Father. Why do we labor? Because that's what God made us to do. God made us to labor to work for his glory, to put God on display in the school systems and the medical clinics and the places in the banks and the grocery stores and the waste disposal places. You see, all of those things, all of those places need Christians to put God on display in them. They need to see Christians who, guess what? may have not gotten that pay raise, but they're going, hey, God doesn't think I need it yet. <laughs> and it's okay, because he's providing for me. He's going to give me everything I need to do. I want to live like Jesus. And Jesus said, hey, guess what? If you're going to follow after me, you're not going to have a place to put your head down on. That's what he told the disciples. But some weird way happens in America that because we're Christians, we think we're entitled to when actually we're supposed to be okay with less. Kids in the room. You're ministering to mom and dad's heart when they give you chores to do and they give you something to do. What's your first response? What's the first thing you want to do when you hear mom and dad say, did you pick up after yourself? Did you, did you clean up the bathroom? Did you wipe out the sink? Did you t wipe off the mirror? Did you put the toilet seat down? Those kind of things. <laughs> Very important, isn't it, Lois? 
What is our first response? Is it to worship and God say, yes, I get to worship God right now. I get to tell Jesus how amazing it is. And because he made me to work, I'm going to go do this thing for mom. And dad, I'm going to just minister to their hearts in this moment. Parents, what are we modeling to our kids? Are we modeling to our kids that we're so miserable in our jobs and we're not getting paid enough and woe is me? What do they hear when you come home? Oh, my life stinks. It's so hard. I can't wait. Da, 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 da. Are they, getting, are they hearing from us? You know what? God gave me this job and he's called me to this place for this time and this season. And yeah, that can change. God can move us and place us in different things over our lifetimes. But he's put me here right now and I want to put God on display. I had this customer walk in today and they gave me grief and I got to just love on them and they didn't want to hear that love. They didn't want to see that love and so they got angrier and I just loved on them some more and praise be to God. They left just yelling and screaming at me, but guess what? I was praising God the whole time. Grandparents, are we modeling retirement as escape from work? Are we teaching our kids that you live for a certain time in your life when you no longer have to work? That's what you're living for. You're living for that day when, sweet, you can, you can hang this up and stop doing that and, and live on easy street and play golf the whole time. Are we teaching and modeling to our grandkids and our great-grandkids that though we may not have an occupation anymore over here, but we are still laboring for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And since we've been able to stop doing this, we're able to focus more on here, and it is amazing. You see, God has made us to work and to labor for him until that glorious day. And we work with this perspective in mind. Then I saw in heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war, and his eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. And he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, and with it to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty, on his robe and on his thigh. His name is written, King of King and Lord of Lord. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord God of the spirits and the prophets has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Jesus says, behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words, the prophecies of this book. Jesus says again, behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each for what he has done. I am the alpha and the omega and the first and the last and the beginning and the end. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon.
and his people respond, amen. Come, Jesus. Do we labor as if he is coming tomorrow? Father God, thank you so much for the opportunity to live this life laboring and working for you. That sometimes the meaningless tasks of life and of work are so hard to do, but we can do them knowing that they can have meaning with you as we are worshiping and glorifying your name as we go about doing them. Lord, the, the hard things that our, our kids have a hard time understanding because they'd much rather play. Lord, I, help, I ask that you'd help our children understand that they're made to work and work is not a bad thing, but a thing that we use to worship and glorify you with. And Lord, as parents in this room, may we understand, and as aunts and as uncles, that those children that we have in our influence, that we get to teach them and instruct them. And Lord, that we are teaching and instructing by the way we respond to the work and the labor that you have given us. Lord, may we not worship it. Lord God, please, if this, any in this, in this room, that their work has become their identity, Lord God, I pray, Lord God, in the name of Jesus Christ, they might be able to confess that today and that their identity might be solely as a child of God. And Lord God, I pray for our, our grandparents, our great-grandparents, that they would continue to teach and instruct all of us what it is to live for the labor of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord God. In Jesus' name we pray, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You know, this week, um, we were, when we were meeting with Tom and John and Scott and talking about the sermon chat, and th there was... Um, there was a, a lot that we were, we were kind of wrestling with because this is, it's hard to think through um, what it means to live in this country with what we have here, and that's okay, but then also, if we didn't have this, what would the, is it okay to look different, and, and are we tied to what we have more than all this? And, and, and really, um, again, it came back to something Tom said when he just said it's, it's identity in Jesus, and that if other stuff goes bad or wrong or gone, identity is in Jesus, and and that's been something for me for the past few days to hold on to, and I appreciate that. It's it, but it's the simple, plain basics of the gospel, right? And I'm like, we're talking about how hard this can be to really grasp as a church or even just as an individual, and but it's just the basics of the gospel, um, and that Christ died so that we don't have to fight and hold on to our own stuff um, and make our own identity and, and make our own way. We can't do it. Uh, and I remember when I left, um, when I got married, and my wife, and I knew she was going into residency, and I had to leave 10 years in, of doing Young Life. I was on staff for Young Life. I had to leave that. And that was all I had done for about a decade, and then I stopped and I thought I was excited let's go and I realized I don't know who I am at the moment like I was the young life guy I was the kid who the guy who just went with all the teenagers all the time and now like oh my gosh what does this mean who am I and I think um, if, you, if thinking about some of these challenges from today what if you lose your stuff what if what if something happened here that changed the way society worked and we didn't get to have things anymore what, what if those things if, if you're having feelings rise up from that 
from those thoughts, that, that could mean your identity needs a, a, a refocusing um, on Christ. And thank God uh, that he sent his son to die for us. Because uh, even in my daily struggles with it, it comes back to the cross. And that I don't have to be a slave to all that stuff, and I can be instead a slave to Jesus. So we're going to celebrate this right now. And Paul says it in, in the book in Corinthians, the letter he wrote to them, that as you, every time you do this, you partake, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. And this is what we have as our foundation. So that John and Clarissa, our youth, are going to come, and they're going to serve us. We have some bread up here to represent the body of Christ that was really broken, like we said in the creed, when he really suffered and died and was buried. And we also have juice to represent for us the blood of Christ that washes us clean from our sin. So we're going to pass these elements out. You guys can come up. As they get passed out, uh, we're going to sing a song. If you're a little bit new here, maybe you don't know, we're going to sing while that happens. We're going to keep moving forward in the heart of worship, trying to keep ourselves focused on this, this identity truly that we have in Christ. Um, Once you have the elements, at that point, you can take them whenever God is leading your heart and it's ready. So um, you can find a neighbor. You can go find your friends or spouse or life group people or however you can stand and, and, and take communion. But we're going to pass them out where, where you are now so we don't have to trip over each other. Um, so let's be open to being served by our youth. Let's be contemplative. Now, before you come to this table, this is for those of us who are in Christ. This is for those of us who have checked our hearts for sin before Christ, who are coming and saying, truly, God, I need you. I have nothing without you. Uh, So let me pray for us and we'll move into um, taking communion and singing more and and, and being reminded of who we are in him. Jesus, thanks that when I struggle, when I try to grasp for things and people's approval or um, roles that I've invented for myself, really all that's going to crumble and it often does and you're always there. That today I can say out loud together with this church, you're the foundation, the rock. You're the one who came and died to give me new life in you. That my old life of that, of striving for self, can go away and die and I can live in you. Thanks for dying to make that possible. Help us please live as the new creations you've made us to be. Thanks for your body and thanks for your blood. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.